Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. What causes bullying? How can defenders reduce its frequency? Is bullying preventable? Those are questions being asked by USU Assistant Professor Diana Meter, who explores what factors predict when kids will stand up for each other and how we can encourage more defenders. Dr. Meter's presentation at a USU Blue Plate research event tomorrow is titled Defenders, Bullies, and Victims, the Social Ecology of Adolescence. Diana Meter is Assistant Professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies in the USU M. Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services at Utah State University. And uh, she uh, studies all of this. Well, we're going to talk about it. The USU Blue Plate research event is 11.30 a.m., Tomorrow, the Gallivan Hall in downtown Salt Lake City. You do need to RSVP, uh, and we'll have that link on our website, upr.org. So, Dan Meter, thanks so much for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate uh, appreciate you uh, you coming in here. Um, so, uh, how did you get into this this particular research? Um, this question, I always get this question. This question always makes me a little nervous to answer because it brings me back to the days when I was experiencing bullying myself. Um, as a middle schooler, I had, you know, my experience being on the victim side of things. And one of the things that was difficult is, is there were all of these people I knew who were my classmates, my peers who knew what was happening and weren't really doing anything to stop it. And, I, you know, it, it sort of sparked my curiosity about um, the social ecology and why certain people get victimized, why people want to be aggressive, and why there are other people who are aware of it who may or may not try to help. Um, so that's what got me started on this um, from an early age. Um, and then, of course, I was very excited to learn um, in college that you can study what you want to study um, mm-hmm. and make your own path um, in research. So that's what I decided to research later on in my education. Uh, what's a range? Give us a range of what what is considered bullying. I think you know, we kind of know it when we see it, or unfortunately experience it. But what's what's the right range? Sure, um, and it's a word that um, you know we use colloquially, colloquially, but um, it has a specific definition um, for researchers. So um, there's actually a larger umbrella term called peer victimization or peer aggression, which would be the um, you know the the actual action of of committing that peer victimization. Um, but that includes um, the sort of stereotypical physical bullying behaviors, hitting, kicking, pushing, things like that. We also include um, verbal um, bullying or victimization in those um, under that umbrella, which could be name calling. Um, you know, again, getting a little bit more broad, but racial and ethnic slurs could be under that umbrella too. Um, And also what we refer to as um, relational aggression or social aggression. And that's that what we think of as stereotypical mean girl behavior, although boys engage in this behavior to the same degree, Um, backstabbing, uh, spreading rumors, leaving people out on purpose, things that are done with the intention of harming one's social um, reputation um, rather than causing physical harm. And bullying specifically um, is more specific than peer victimization. And bullying is when there are repeated incidents of peer victimization and when there is a power imbalance between the victim and the aggressor that makes it very difficult or impossible for the victim to, you know, fight back or stand up for themselves. Mm. 
Sometimes we think, uh, you know, physical, uh, physical altercations, but it, as you say, a broad range there. I think your experience is kind of a, uh, an, an example. As, as I understand, a sudden shift in your social group. Yes. Um, so when I was about 12, 13 years old, um, I had my middle school, not really boyfriend, boyfriend, and a group of friends, and things were going great. We rode the bus together. We did extracurricular activities together. And then um, he and I broke up. He started dating my friend. And all of a sudden, I was socially ostracized. Um, I really felt like I didn't have anyone to sit with or didn't have anyone to talk to. And the reason it always makes me nervous talking about this is that as an, as an adult, it feels very silly to say this. It seems like, oh, that's like, who cares? It's kid stuff. But for kids that age, when their social groups are so important to them, it, it really is impactful to feel um, socially isolated. Um, so yeah, I, I experienced some of that more relational aggression where I felt like I was left out on purpose um, to try to send a message that I was not in the group anymore. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of us have that attitude. You get to adulthood, you look back on that and you think that's kind of silly. I think we all remember the pain though, right? That remains exactly, <laughs> you know? and and I think it's 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 fascinating whenever I tell people what I do for work because most people either experienced it or had a child who experienced victimization, and and everyone remembers it and they usually remember it vividly and I think that that's more evidence for us that even though the um, exact context of the victimization situation may seem childish um, when we look back as on it as adults, um, that it still is really impactful. Yeah. Maybe we pause right here to, to talk about reverberations into adulthood. I imagine there are, in, in at least in some cases. Yes, and there are um, there are consequences that can follow youth into adulthood for both the victims and for the aggressors. Um, so, when people experience victimization, they um, some people react with more internalizing problems, which would be things like depression or anxiety. Some people act out um, in when, with externalizing behaviors. They might be more aggressive themselves as a result. But there is research that has followed people over many years to show that both the victims and the aggressors can have some um, lasting consequences. Hmm. Um, so uh, are there differences, uh, you know, gender differences? Uh, I imagine there would be in, in uh, the types of bullying that happen. Yes, and this has been a really interesting um, area of research for many years in this field. Um, with physical aggression, this is probably not surprising to listeners, um, we see boys engaging in more physical aggression than girls. Um, and this is the case from preschool up until adulthood. We just see that when we're comparing men and women, we see more um, aggression among men and boys. But when we're talking about those more social forms of aggression, um, there was this um, idea for a long time that this was the type of aggression in which girls engage. But as more and more research has accumulated and um, that research has been put together using um, a meta-analytic approach, which takes all of the previous research and looks at the conclusions across studies, they've really found that boys and girls engage in this type of behavior to about an equal degree. And I think this is really important to understand, um, you know, so parents and educators and people who are around young people can know we shouldn't just be expecting certain behavior from boys and certain behavior from girls, but that we should um, be aware that, you know, all kids can essentially engage in this behavior, be victimized by this behavior, and and be on the lookout for it. Because especially that that social or relational aggression, a lot of times is um, the people who engage in it are doing it when adults aren't around, and it's a little bit more covert. 
so the, it seems like the, the reach, you might call it the available tools to a bully are, are broader these days. Cyberbullying, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yes. Um, and, you know, there a, a, another conversation in the field is, is this really a different type of bullying or victimization, or is this just a different context in which it's occurring? But... From my perspective, there are some things that are different about it that make it potentially more impactful. Um, you know, if you are having a hard time during your school day or at an extracurricular activity where you are having to engage with uh, with a bully, you can go home and you can might, might have your neighborhood friends or a, a, you know, a close family that is your support system. But now that we're seeing aggression occurring in digital spaces, there's not really a way to get away from it. It's happening all the time. Sometimes you know, these posts are permanent or can get sent around. Um, and so it can be more lasting. It can reach, reach a wider audience and kids can't necessarily shut it off and get away from it. Um, so tell me a bit about what's happening in, you know, I guess, teenhood, teenage years that, that makes uh, kids so vulnerable. I guess you're talking, I don't know, what, mostly middle school? Is yes. A- um, so there, there's a research that is, that has looked at kids, um, bullying behaviors across time. And what we see is there's typically, well, we know toddlers can be pretty aggressive, um, but then we see that there is an uptick in relational or social aggression, a little bit of a decrease in physical aggression about the, around the middle school years. And then by the time kids are graduating high school, we see a little bit of a dip. So there is a developmental change that's taking place. And we do see a lot of aggression taking place around the middle school years. And there are theories to help us explain why we think that's happening. So one of the main things, and this isn't just for teenagers or adolescents, but um, something that's a little bit more broad is... Um, that humans have a need to belong. We want to be part of communities. We want to be part of friendships. We want to feel like we have others we can relate to. And so that need to belong is very important. What does change during the adolescent years is that kids are starting to differentiate themselves from their families a little bit and start to explore their identities. They're asking those questions about who am I? How do I fit into this world? What is my place? And so they have this need to belong and now they're focusing a little bit more on, the, on how they belong to the peer group versus maybe some of the other communities that they're a part of. Um, there's also this interesting thing that t- takes place around this time um, that's called the imaginary audience um, by psychologists and developmental scientists, where youth are very attuned to how they're perceived by others. And so they might be really careful about how they're presenting themselves so that they'll be... Um, seen in a positive light by their peers. And these things together can sort of, you know, lead to some interesting dynamics in the peer group. So they're trying to discover what makes me me, right? Um, that their own identity, and, and that can seem paradoxical just to, to say that they focus so much on the group, but I guess it's in relation to the group that they're trying to figure this out, right? Yes, it's sort of figuring out, um, you know, what makes me unique, but also what will make me accepted by the peer group. Um, so a lot of what is created in the peer group during this time is social norms. So youth are looking to what other people are doing to see, you know, what what behavior is acceptable, what behavior is unacceptable. And there are some youth who fit in and um, it's easy for them to sort of go along with what everyone else is doing. And so they might have a little bit of an easier time with that. There are some people who feel like maybe I'm a little bit different. My identity isn't in line with most of my peers. And so, you know, they might struggle a little bit to figure out who they are, 
because it's 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 a personality or it's it's a person who's developing to be a little bit different than the the mainstream. Hmm. So this is where the, the the problem comes. You know, everything would be totally fine if 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 all the kids would join hands and sing Kumbaya, right? Uh, but they don't. <laughs> so uh, so um, it gets us into why do bullies bully? I guess let's start there. What, yes. what are they trying to do? Well, there's different reasons for us. And I guess a lot of this is theoretical, but there is research evidence to support it. So there are some individuals who engage in aggression and bully others in a way that is reactive. Um, there are youth who, because usually because of previous experiences, sort of see their world as a hostile place. And so... They are quick to be aggressive toward others in retaliation for behaviors that they might see as a slight. So we see some kids that are just like more prone to act aggressively toward others um, in, you know, minor conflict situations that some of their peers may not see as, you know, as um, so much of a slight. We also see that there are youth who are aggressive um, in what we call a proactive way. And this is usually because there's something that they want to gain. Um, we talk about it as in terms of power, but we can think of it about this as popularity, being in a certain group, um, ensuring that somebody that they don't like doesn't get something that they want. Um, so people could be aggressive for a variety of reasons in order to, you know, maybe impress a peer group member or you know a particular other that's in their social sphere. Mm. Um, I guess. Bulliers would probably fit in. They're trying to figure out their identity as well, right? Exactly. And that's why, you know, as as a researcher, and I think interventionists would feel even str more strongly about this, we try not to label kids as, as this is a bully, this is a victim, because... First, these labels don't always apply for a long period of time. There are kids who are both bullies and victims at the same time. Um, they also are trying to find themselves. A lot of kids who are engaging in aggression might not have the social skills to deal with conflict or disappointment or competition um, in more socially skilled ways. Um, and so they're using that aggressive behavior. It could have been the behavior that was modeled for them at home. Um, there's lots of reasons why people might engage in aggression. And so I try not to think about it as, you know, these kids are bad or something like that because they're going through these same developmental processes and trying to figure out how they fit in and who they are also. Do we have any uh, research shows, uh, you know, a, a bully kid who's bullying is a bully? Um, you know, how long does, does this does this just take the arc from, you know, elementary school starting and then fading away in high school? I guess it's uh, different for different individuals. Um, yes, it is. So there is some research that's done with what's called a person-centered analysis, which really shows how individuals are following their own trajectory and aggression over time. Um, and there are some people who are just high in aggression from when they're pretty young until, you know, we they're, the researchers finish following them usually in their early 20s or a little bit before then. Um, but there are some people who sort of peak in those adolescent years. So the answer to the question is sort of it's mixed. There yeah. are there are different people who follow different trajectories of aggressive behavior. Yeah, You did mention that uh, some uh, <laughs> some kids are bullies and bullied. Yes. Um, these individuals are referred to as bully victims in the research literature, which is pretty straightforward. Um, and it's sort of a small group, but we see that these kids usually have even more problems than some of the kids who are, are, are sort of strictly victimized or strictly bullied. Um, and so those kids, I think if I was a, a teacher and an interventionist would be the ones that I'd want to target first for seeing what's going on and how can we help them? Um, because, you know, it's, they're, they're acting out, they're, they're, 
on the receiving end of aggression and then they're engaging in this behavior as a way to try to, you know, make things better for themselves. But it's just sort of continuing a cycle of aggression that's not healthy for them. Well, let's take a break. Um, When we come back, I want to switch to those who are bullied and we'll get to defenders as well. It's an important small group of of, uh, young people. Uh, there's a USU Blue Plate research event that'll be happening tomorrow at 11:30 a.m. Uh, at Gallivan Hall in downtown Salt Lake City, and the presenter is Diana Meter, who is assistant professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies in the USU M. Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services at Utah State University. And the title of that uh, event is "Defenders, Bullies, and Victims: The Social Ecology of Adolescence." More following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and our guest for the hour is Diana Meter. She's assistant professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies in the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services at USU, and uh, she studies bullying, uh, who who bullies, who is bullied, and uh, this uh, key uh, subset of uh, of kids called defenders. And uh, the title of her talk, which will happen tomorrow, is uh, Defenders, Bullies, and Victims, the Social Ecology of Adolescence. That's a USU Blue Plate research event. That's 11.30 a.m. tomorrow at the Gallivan, uh, Gallivan Hall in downtown Salt Lake City. You do need to RSVP for that. We'll have the link to that uh, page on our website, upr.org, uh, a little later today. So, Dynamiter, we talked about who bullies. Let's talk about who is bullied uh, what are some shared characteristics of, of those who become victims? Sure. Um, and this is another thing that I think is a little bit hard to talk about because in some ways it, 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 it might suggest to some people that kids who have this char- these characteristics might be asking for it or something like that. And I just want to make it clear that I do not believe that in any way. It's just that there are some shared characteristics um, that we see among kids who tend to be victimized. Um, so... A lot of it is is what we'd sort of expect um, kids who tend to be physically smaller. Um, we also see kids who have, you know, ADHD and might be engaging in some more um, behaviors that their peers might, you know, not be super fond of, might be um, more victimized. We also see that um, there are kids from particular groups that are victimized. And this is something that's, you know, important to me to study and something I've been studying more. But we know that kids who identify as LGBTQ plus tend to be victimized more. Um, We know kids with bigger bodies tend to be victimized more. Kids with disabilities tend to be victimized more. In some contexts, kids who um, identify as racial and ethnic minorities tend to be victimized more. So, those are sort of some common characteristics, but there are also kids who are victimized and they don't really know why. And there's actually been, there's data that's collected in Utah, but also across the country. And there's always a percentage of kids who are bullied and they don't know why. Uh, especially, especially hard, I guess. I guess hard, hard to be bullied, but especially if you don't even know why. Yeah. Yeah. There's actually some interesting research by some researchers who were collecting data in California, um, looking at whether kids would think that they were bullied because of them who they were themselves or if it was something that was a little bit more external like um, I'm bullied because of my race and ethnicity versus I'm bullied because of who I am and I believe the results show that when kids thought of it in a more personal way it was actually more impactful it was still bad if you know if they were bullied because of other reasons but um, that can be especially impactful yeah 
Um, of course, um, you know, it's, a, it's, I don't know what percentage, a small percentage I would expect. Um, some kids who are bullied just don't see a way out and, and suicide results. That's, you know, it's especially tragic. Yes. And, um, that is one of the things that's really hard for kids who are victimized is they might not feel like they have anyone to talk to and they might feel extremely isolated. And, um, this is why I think it's really important for the adults and peers in their lives to sort of be aware of what might be going on um, because kids might not speak up about it. They might not talk about it. They might think it's going to make it worse. It could make it worse if they go tell their teachers or their parents, um, depending on the situation. And so I think that it's the responsibility of the peer group and the trusted adults in kids' lives to really look out for changes in behavior, withdrawn behavior and things like that and, and, and reach out. And something that this is not really my area of research, but something that um, suicide prevention researchers and interventionists talk about is like, it's okay to ask somebody if they're considering suicide. Um, find out and get people help as soon as you can. So uh, for a parent, say, um, I guess if, if your child uh, has a change in behavior, that would be a a red flag? Yes. I think that um, withdrawn behavior, not wanting to engage in the activities that they usually engage in, not wanting to go to school. Um, I think for some, you know, most most teens are very involved in digital media, social media and their phones a lot. If they're not wanting to be in those digital spaces, that could be a sign. Um, also, sometimes kids will show um, that something's wrong in different ways than we might expect. They might have headaches, somatic complaints, stomach aches, things like that. Um, so just to be aware of different things that are going on and not to be afraid to ask directly about what's going on in case a kid is afraid to tell their parent. Yeah. Oh, what about a teacher? Um, you, know, you said, and I think we, we know this, bullying often happens outside of the eyes of the teacher, right? Yes. Um, so I think, again, teachers might not, see the bullying incidents, but they might be aware of changes in, in kids' behaviors. Um, and I, I mean, I have my personal anecdote from when I was that age. I remember my English teacher was noticing that I just wasn't participating in class, even though my grades were fine and I was still keeping up and things. She just knew that I wasn't myself. Um, and I think it, you know, it takes, teachers have so many students and so many responsibilities. It really, you know, takes a lot of work and effort. And I know we're putting another layer of things on, on the plate for teachers to do, but um, to just, you know, also be aware of those those subtle changes and be willing to ask directly what's going on and, and help connect students to the resources that they need. What about if bullying is happening online? What, uh, so for example, a parent? What, what can a parent do? Yeah, so this is <coughs> this is sort of a complicated question um, because the laws around cyberbullying vary from place to place. You know, is it the school's responsibility to intervene if a kid from the same school is cyberbullying somebody else? Is it happening on campus or did it happen after hours? So it's kind of complicated, and that's why I think it's a good idea, as, as you said, to maybe have parents be aware of what's going on. Um, so there's a couple of recommendations that my research team and I have given to people we've worked with before. Um, and in, in, in regard to electronic communication specifically, it's to sort of have a code of conduct with your kids about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Um, and also we recommend that parents learn the different social media platforms that they're their kids are using be aware of you know the the different intricacies of it you know are are people creating fake accounts do the messages disappear what what are the social norms and they can do that by getting an account themselves and friending 
their kid. And may, that can maybe sort of be a baseline for what is what the kid is allowed to do so that the parents can sort of be aware of how people act in this social media um, site. And, you know, if they do see things, even if the parent sees an example that their kid isn't directly involved in, you know, that can be a time to sit down and talk and problem solve and, and figure out, you know, how the kid could deal with this situation if they're ever in a situation like that. Oh, what if you're a parent of a bullier? What if you find out your kid is the bully? Yeah, so this is this is also a complicated situation. And I think that something that's important here is for is to let the whatever the context organization is where the bullying is occurring Mm. sort of be a mediator. Um, It can be hard to find out that your kid is being mean to other kids. And, you know, parents might be defensive. And it might also be the case that the kid isn't always being aggressive or being a bully, but maybe having some of their own problems at home or at school. And so having, you know, let's say, you know, the the school counselor or vice principal or somebody serve as a mediator between families when they're dealing with these problems can be really helpful in having things be on a little bit more neutral ground rather than finger pointing and saying one kid is to blame for everything that's going on. Um, but sometimes parents didn't really know what was going on or sort of shocked by the behavior. I'm thinking of a, um, a situation here in Logan where um, one of my friend and colleague's daughters was, was called a racial slur and they went to the school about it. The school contacted the kids' parents who used that racial slur, and they were really shocked about it. But, you know, had they not gone through that process, those parents would have, wouldn't have found out and wouldn't have been able to talk to their child about the situation and try to make things better. By the way, this is just another parenthetical. <clears throat> um, and this you think of more as high school or, or you know, uh, hazing, kind of somewhat. But some similarities, right? It, an, an attempt to, hey, we're we're all a team together, so we're going to haze the new people. Yes, and you know, if if everybody's on board with it, you know, that's mm. the thing about that's the thing about bullying and victimization. And I was talking about that power imbalance before. If people are on board with it and they think it's kind of fun, or they they are sort of expecting it, you know, that's not necessarily bullying. If they can say stop and people will stop, that's not necessarily bullying. So not all conflict or not all interactions I think are necessarily negative. It's when somebody's being harmed by it and doesn't want it to happen and can't make it stop that I think it's really problematic. But something that you brought up that I think is important is that bullying and victimization sort of share boundaries with a lot of other things that can affect youth in negative ways. So things like hazing, sexual harassment, um, discrimination, these it can start as bullying and sort of merge into these other categories. It can start in these other categories and become bullying. So I think it's important to be aware of these other things happening in the peer ecology as well. Mm. Um, You talked about, uh, you know, if you find out your, your child is, is being mean or uh, being bullied, uh, you go to school and maybe there's mediation. Um, I guess there's always a risk of retaliation, right? Uh, The, the bully says, okay, you, you talk to the teacher, you talk to your parent. I want to meet you out the out back of the building, you know, afterward. Yeah, and I think that's that's a lot of the fear that, that kids have. And, and there's research to show that kids don't often tell adults, even though that's something that they're encouraged to do right away. They don't it might be that they don't want to be seen as a tattletale, but it could also be that they're they're worried about retaliation. And so I think that one of the most important things that adults can do if they if the kid doesn't want them to intervene, I mean there's certain times adults must and are legally bound to, but you know, if if it's it, they might just be able to be a listening ear and support the kid and let them know they're on their side and and maybe give them 
them some advice about, you know, ways to get out of that situation or, you know, where could you go during lunch instead or, you know, could you take could you ride your bike to another bus stop or something like that just other ways to try to problem solve and let them know that they're not alone in the situation even if they're not directly intervening because that might not be something the kid wants them to do mm. there is i think what you would call a misconception among some people that um, you know that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger this type of thing so if you just endure the bullying, it'll make you stronger. Yes, this is something that whenever I've given parent presentations or you know done more public-facing events, I usually get a question or a comment um, about um, bullying perhaps making you stronger. Um, and I think what differentiates you know aversive experiences making us stronger from a bullying situation is that when we're talking about conflict and friendships, we're learning you know you're you're, you're, talk, you're learning how to compromise, you're learning how to problem solve. Those are important skills to develop, and those are going to make you stronger and a more well-adjusted, you know, developing person or adult. Um, but when we're talking about bullying, these are situations where the kid can't, literally can't stand up for themselves or really do anything about it because they don't have the the social strength or the social power or physical power, if it's a physical bullying situation, to necessarily be able to do that. Um, and you know, things are probably going to get better for them. Like these situations aren't going to last forever as kids move through school and different activities and are probably not going to be around the same people. But while it's happening, it can be so impactful. And I don't think the right message is, you know, just wait, you'll be better for this. Um, so it's possible that they'll learn, you know, a little bit of resilience. But what the research overwhelmingly shows is that when kids are engaged in um, or are, are part of peer victimization situations, it's it's impacting them in negative ways, not mm -hmm. positive ways. Yeah. Um, I'd like to turn to uh, this very interesting uh, part of your, your, um, your research, uh, defenders. Um, so there's a, there's a certain percentage of kids, probably small, who stand up for the bullied, right? Um, yes. Uh, so the the term defender was created by a researcher named Christina Salmavali, but there's others who use terms like upstander. Um, so those might be terms that listeners are familiar with. Um, and these individuals have piqued the interest of interventionists and researchers because they are they tend to be pretty successful in stopping peer victimization from continuing. Um, and they're they're unique individuals. They're sometimes putting themselves in harm's way and standing up to a powerful aggressor when a victim may not be able to, um, to make the situation better. What, uh, what tends to, uh, what's the profile, I guess, of a defendant? Sure, yes. And, you know, same with victimization. This isn't, you know, uh, this isn't the, true for everyone across the board, but um, my colleague Ting Lan Ma and, and some um, other researchers and I did a meta-analysis, again, putting the results together from many, many studies on defenders. And what we found is that defenders tend to, more, to be girls more than boys, if we're just looking at boys and girls. Um, and the reason we think that is why is that, you know, girls in Western cultures tend to be, you know, brought up to be a little bit more caring and nurturing. And so we think that that might be part of why we're seeing more girl defenders. Um, they tend to be a little bit younger. We see once kids are older, they may not be as willing to intervene. We also see that kids who have more empathy um, are more willing to intervene or defend, which I think, again, goes with maybe why we're seeing more girl defenders. We might be developing more empathy in girls. Um, Another interesting uh, correlate of defending is less moral disengagement. And I'll let you know what that means. So moral disengagement um, is a concept that describes when people are willing to 
trade their moral compass by for for a different explanation. So, well, yeah, I hit him, but he was, you know, being annoying or yes, I used bad words, but my teacher used a bad word first. You know, so sort of um a, a euphemistic way to look at your bad behavior. And so kids who morally disengage tend to be more aggressive. Kids who don't morally disengage and kind of hold on to their morals and don't make excuses for their bad behavior, they tend to defend more. Mm-hmm. Now, this can be, oh, it can be dangerous, right? You, you intervene, you, you might get hurt either physically or emotionally. Yes. And so this is something that has been of interest to me in my research. Not a lot of people have looked at this. And um, I, there was one p- paper that where I looked at over time, how does defending impact defenders themselves? And I actually found that over time, although they tend to be tended to be less victimized themselves, they also were less liked over time. Um, defenders also tend to be more accepted and liked in the peer group. And I wonder if intervening and standing up for to aggressive peers who tend to be more popular could actually be, you know, detrimental to their own relationships with others in the peer group. Um, and so that's why I get a little nervous when I see these calls to youth to, you know, be, be more than a bystander, be an upstander, defend your peers, because I don't know if we know that it's always safe to do so. I think there's probably kids who have a lot of friends and are, you know, well-connected in their peer groups who could stand up for their peers and everything would be okay. But I also worry that kids who are vulnerable for victimization might put themselves in harm's way. Hmm. Uh, do we, have we connected the dots? I guess this is a little newer studying defenders of uh, what defenders go on to do and how this affects them in later life? We don't know. I think that's a fabulous yeah. future research question. But uh, the kids who tend to fit this profile tend to, you know, be pro-social, be well-liked by their peers. They're probably going to be doing pretty well in the yeah. future as well. Yeah. Um, it occurs to me that all of these words and all of these concepts, uh, they're right there in trainings I've gone to about, uh, you know, preventing sexual assault, for example. Yes. And that's why I was I was making that comment before that a lot of these things are sort of um, overlapping. You know, sexual harassment and bullying could absolutely go in hand in hand. And so, yeah, it's like there are there are certain times where I think, you know, no question, intervene. you got to stop this situation from happening. Um, but, you know, if you think about somebody who's in a sexual harassment or sexual assault situation, it might be really scary to intervene. And I think the same thing can happen for youth in these bullying situations. And so one thing that I tell people who have questions about defending and how to be a defender is that it may not always have to be direct by you. You could get other people and get a group and help together. It might not even be, you know, that direct it could st- it could be sending a text to somebody letting them know that you're on their side it could be letting an adult or an authority know what's going on it could be walking with somebody in between class or sitting with them at lunch so that they're not vulnerable to victimization so it doesn't necessarily have to look like direct intervention we don't want people to directly intervene if they're putting themselves in harm's way but we want them to also know that there are other ways that you can help and make things better for a victim that may not be as risky for yourself mm-hmm. are are there are there trainings and you know, for, for you know, are there programs where you you teach kids how to safely intervene or be a defender? Yes, um, and some of the more um, successful school-based interventions for bullying prevention have had a defender component, um, and so it does seem to be 
effective, but that's also not the only component. Usually really effective interventions or trainings, um, they're not they're not one day assemblies. They're not, you know, just uh, a single component, but they involve, you know, um, more of a long term approach and sometimes a tiered approach where there are, you know, individual more um, complex interventions with certain children who need more support. There might be, um, you know, secondary level trainings that um, are happening in small groups of kids who might be at more risk. And then there might be, you know, a broader whole school based approach that is, you know, touching all the kids, but maybe not going to be as intense for the kids who don't need as much Mm -hmm. intervention. Right. You said you've uh, you presented to parents, I guess. Uh, have you presented to kids? Yes, I have. Um, what, what kinds of questions do you get back? That must be pretty interesting. Well, it's it's always it's it's been really interesting also because I've talked to kids of different ages and um, from different um, types of organizations. Like I presented to a swim team once because the the coaches recognized that they were having a bullying problem and they wanted us to talk a little bit more about it. And it's just interesting how willing kids are to open up and tell their stories, sort of like we were talking about before, about our personal stories. These these things really sit with kids, whether it was their own experience or one that they witnessed where they didn't intervene and they still think about it. Um, and so I think one of the things that's been helpful when I've talked to kids is that they're really able to hear from each other. And again, doing that problem solving, that sort of um, role playing of what could have been done in the past, what could you do in the future to try to help other people. So yeah, it's been really interesting. Yeah, that that must be especially interesting, uh, you know, talking directly to kids. Yeah. Um, well, let's uh, let's take another break, and we'll come back. We'll have our last segment with Dana Meter. She is uh, a USU assistant professor uh, in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies, and uh, she studies bullying. And the title of her talk, which will happen tomorrow in Salt Lake City, is Defenders, Bullies, and Victims, the Social Ecology of Adolescence. Uh, that's a USU Blue Plate research event, 11.30 a.m. at Gallivan Hall in downtown Salt Lake City. You do need to RSVP for that. We'll have the link to that event, so you can do that on our website, upr.org. More following this. You're listening to Access Utah. Glad you're with me. Uh, I'm Tom Williams. Uh, Donna Meter is my guest. She's assistant professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies at USU. And uh, she will be giving a USU Blue Plate Research uh, event talk. That'll be 11.30 a.m. And it goes until 1. Uh, tomorrow, Gallivan Hall in downtown Salt Lake City. Lunch is involved. RSVP is required. We'll have the link to that event up on our uh, website, so you can can RSVP. Uh, UPR.org is our website. So, Dan, I'm wonder wondering uh, if you tell me a little about how you would go about your research. I guess one way I could imagine you could you could go and uh, crouch in a hallway for for a long time and hope that uh, not hope, but uh, uh, observe bullying. I'm guessing that's not how you do it. Well, that's not how I do it, but it is actually how some of my colleagues do it. Oh, they do. do. They do. So, okay. so it's, inter- it's, it's a really interesting field of research because a lot of us bring different research methods together to understand these things. And when we use different approaches and are finding similar conclusions, I think that that's really telling. So a lot of the work that I do um, involves um, quantitative statistics. And so therefore, I'm looking for a little bit of a larger sample to work with. I'm really interested in what's going on, um, you know, in the whole 
peer group. So I might be looking at, um, you know, kids by grade or, you know, a couple of different schools and seeing if there's school by school differences. But a lot of what I do is surveying kids and asking them what's happening. But, you know, we we are all a little bit biased. So what we like to do is, in addition to self-reports, when kids are just reporting on their own behavior, those sort of questionnaires we do at the doctor's office or anywhere else, we'll ask for additional reports. We'll ask for kids to do a peer report. So who in your peer group is um, helps others with their homework? Who in your peer group would stand up for somebody um, who other people are being mean to? So we can use these peer reports to kind of get a little bit more information. Sometimes we'll ask for what's called a dyadic report. Um, so who is kind to you or who do you like? So we get that, you know, interpersonal sort of information. We can also ask um, teachers and parents for information. And something that I learned a lot about as a postdoc when I was at the University of Texas at Dallas is um, what I think a lot of the future of research is going to be in all of these different areas, um, harnessing the power of technology to learn more about youth in ways where we can observe their behavior without actually being there. Um, We can, you know, conversations are happening on digital media. We see aggression taking place, cyberbullying unfolding in real time. Um, and, you know, if we have permission and it's okay with, with the, the youth to, to look at some of that data, it's a really naturalistic way to understand the peer ecology. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, get this metadata. And and you're but you're also interacting with middle schoolers on in some events, right? Not in research, but in presentations. Mm-hmm. Oh, I just just parenthetically, I wonder if that takes you back, you know, when you when, <laughs> to to a place I would never want to go back to middle school. <laughs> it's a place that I don't necessarily want to go back to either. Um, but it's always kind of fun when I go. I I'm always kind of taken by how much younger the students are to me now than I felt when I was that age. I felt mm-hmm. so grown up and I felt like I had to have all the answers. Mm-hmm. And, and when I go back, I'm like, oh, they, they're, they're kids. They're, they're young yeah. kids. And, and it just reminds me of how much support they, they need and yeah. how much we can help them out with the hard things that they're going through. That is interesting. I, I felt that way as well when I was that age. You know, I, I felt grown up, felt like I needed to have the answers. And that can be a problem sometimes, I imagine, right? If you, if you feel like you have to have all the answers and you don't have them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I understand Utah collects data on bullying. You, you access that? and yes. tell, tell us a little bit about that and what it says. Well, I use that a lot in my teaching, actually. So that's what we call descriptive data. So it's not really getting to, like, how does this, how does, you know, defending relate to how much you're liked a year later? We can't answer those sorts of questions. But it's the type of data that just gives us a snapshot of what's going on. Um, and so when we look at that, that's where I got that information I was talking about before about, you know, the different reasons why kids are bullied. Um, we see a lot of kids say they're bullied because of their social status and what they look like and things like that. But we can also get at um, a little bit more nuance about, you know, how many kids are bullied because of, of you know, their identity um, and things like that. Um, one thing that is difficult when looking at some of those statistics is that they can unless you're interpreting them correctly, they can tell a different story. So for instance, it might look like, oh, well, there aren't many kids who are bullied because they identify as LGBTQ. But if you think about the fact that there's only, a, you know, maybe 10% of kids who have one of these minority identities and 4% of them are saying, I am bullied because of this, that percentage is actually a lot bigger. And so I think that it's important to look at some of that descriptive data. I think that's great that we get that snapshot data from from the state. And I, I hope that they continue to ask these important questions about sexual identity, about um, race and ethnicity, about disability, so we can understand these problems. But I also think it's important that we can take a step back and really understand what those statistics mean. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so you talk specifically about sexual identity. What, what about race and ethnic, um, you know, origin or, or disability? Higher percentages? Yes, higher percentages. Uh, yeah. And I think that we've, you know, we've, we've seen, if, you, if you're following the news, we can see some of that play out. We've, um, we're learning about the fact that discrimination is still happening in schools um, on a regular basis. And some of the reports are showing that the adults in the schools may not be um, regularly trying to prevent that from happening. And so I think that it kind of brings back to that whole school approach where everybody needs to see, be on the same page and sending the message that this is absolutely inappropriate and we're not going to be um, going forward with this. But it's something that's interesting to me as, as somebody who's lived in Utah now for five years is that we have, you know, an interesting um, demographic makeup in this state. And I have not collected much data in Utah, but I would love to work with schools who are interested to understand more about um, this identity-based bullying that's going on in Utah. Um, you know, we're, uh, we're a pretty homogenous group for the most part in this state, but there are lots of racial and ethnic minority groups represented. There are religious minorities, there are sexual minorities, and I just think it would be really great to hear about their experiences um, living in this state and learning more about what we can do to um, prevent bullying and victimization from, from taking place and making schools safer places for kids. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about that. What uh, what's what's your perception of uh, you know five years in Utah now? So, um, perception of the demographics here, and then what would you most like to know in in, in this area of bullying? Um, well, so a lot of the research that I read about um, this identity based bullying is is coming from states where there is a little bit more diversity in most of the schools. So, you know, there are schools that are fairly diverse in Utah. There are also some, you know, it's, it's you learn from this, you learn about this stuff colloquially, colloquially talking to, you know, your, your hairdresser or, you know, parents of kids in the neighborhood and things like that. But, you know, some of the kids say, like, there are very few racial and ethnic minority kids growing up in, in their neighborhoods and in their schools. And if kids are not having friendships and relationships with people who are different from them, you know, I'm, I'm interested in how that can contribute to victimization and what the experience is like for kids who might feel a little bit different from everybody else. Mm. So the overall uh, studies, the overall data, is is there more bullying over time or is it getting better? Um, I don't know that we've been collecting it long enough to know that it's necessarily getting worse over time. I know that there was just a, a story in the Salt Lake Tribune about um, more um, hate crimes against um, LGBTQ folks in Utah, and that includes adults. Um, uh, recently, um, there's another place to, to look if you're interested in learning more about this. Um, Glisten.org, G-L-S-E-N.org, collects data um, from youth who identify as LGBTQ plus to learn about um, their bullying experiences and it's it, their report on Utah specifically is is fairly shocking in in regard to you know how bad things can be for some kids, mm -hmm. um, and so I think that it's important that we are aware that these things are happening and really you know reach out and protect kids who we think might be vulnerable to this type of victimization even more um, because we know that is a problem. But as far as knowing is it worse than ten years ago, a lot of this data hasn't been collected for that long. Um, but it's an interesting thing to look at to see if these problems are getting worse and and if they are, you know, intervening quickly to make sure that these kids are okay. Yeah. Um, so is it similar patterns in adults? I know you study kids, I guess, but as far as you know, similar patterns in adults. There, there are power imbalances among adults and aggression among adults. Yes. And so as you said, this isn't what I look at specifically, but we do know that there's workplace bullying. These things can take place among adults. Um, 
And I, this is actually something that I'm that I'm interested in and have looked at a little bit is you know how our parenting strategies related to aggressive behavior. So if parents are using more coercive strategies, if they're you know using guilt induction or ignoring their child when they're mad at them, um, rather than you know maybe some more positive parenting strategies to deal with poor behavior, poor choices, things like that, is that sort of teaching youth how to use those strategies in conflict with their peers. So um, it definitely does go on among adults, um, but most of my research is focused on how the parenting practices have related to kids. Um, so. Um, just have a couple of minutes left. I wanna, I wanna end on this. You made reference to this a couple of times. I wanna have you maybe emphasize this. Uh, or of course you want to stop individual cases of bullying, but what's especially needed is a change in culture, right? It, in, in each each school and each environment. So how do you change the culture? Yes. And I don't know if all interventionists or researchers would agree with me on this, but I'm of the mindset that, you know, conflict is inevitable. I think victimization is something we see it pretty universally. And it's been going on for a very long time. If you look at historical texts and things like that, um, there's examples of it. So I don't think it's necessarily going away. But what we do know is a really good way to buffer some of these, you know, pure conflicts that can turn into bullying is to have what's called a positive school climate, um, where kids feel like they have a sense of belonging, where they're accepted, where it's safe. Um, when that's lacking, there are more problems. And so, yeah, I think it's, I mean, it, and it's not just for schools, I think for, you know, as I mentioned, I talked to a, a swim team once, I think for different organizations that have groups of kids together, it's important to spend time and spend resources on, on building community um, and building relationships among youth so that they can have those positive experiences. They can get to know the adults and feel like they can really talk to them about their problems so that when problems do arise, it can be um, dealt with in developmentally appropriate and, and, and successful ways. Are there resources? Are there, are there websites you would point people to? Uh Yes, I think two great starting pl places um, are stopbullying.gov. Um, they it's, it's a great government website with a lot of resources. Also, cyberbullying.org has a lot of good tips for parents about um, kids in digital spaces, not just bullying related, but um, how to stay safe um, in digital spaces. Um, and then also every school should have their own um, anti-bullying um, policies and um, frameworks in place. So if parents have specific questions, I encourage them to talk to the administrators at their children's schools, talk to the school counselors about the things that are in place to learn a little bit more about what's going on um, within those contexts and how they might be able to build on some of the lessons that are happening in schools um, and kind of have that, you know, a, a home component as well that can contribute to developing safer schools. Well, important uh, topic, and uh, we appreciate you coming in, Dynameter. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Appreciate it. Dynameter is assistant professor in the Department of Human uh, Development and Family Studies in the Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services at US, Utah State University. Um, and she'll be giving a USU Blue Plate Research uh, Talk at 11.30 a.m. tomorrow, Gallivan Hall, downtown Salt Lake City. You do need to RSVP. Uh, you can do that from our website. We'll have that up in about an hour here. Uh, and uh, we appreciate Nanometer uh, c coming in. And uh, thanks so much for listening to Access Utah today.